Well, if you're joining us, we have been working through a series on the mission of God in the world. And this has been our premise, that God is at work on, in the world because he is on a mission. He's not just doing random things. There's actually this cohesive uh, mission that he's carrying out. And it is to put back together everything that was broken by the curse of sin. That's really the storyline of the Bible, starting from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation. That's the strand that carries us through, that God is putting back together everything that has been broken by the curse of sin. This is why God sent his son into the world. That is why Jesus died and rose victorious from the grave. That's why the Holy Spirit has been given to the church to move the mission of God forward. And we've seen that applied to a number of different areas. We've looked at um, we've looked at the mission of God and how it shapes the church. We've looked at the mission of God in context of our relationships because we have been trying to center so many areas of our lives on the mission of God as an organizing principle. Like, let our lives be centered around that. Let everything kind of come out of it like, like the spokes on a wheel. Like the center is God and his mission. Everything revolves around that. And every area of our life connects to it. And when it connects to it, it gives us a sense of purpose, but also empowers us to live all of our lives. And lately, we've been talking about relationships. And it made me think. It made me think about 1 Corinthians 7 and how God, how Paul applies the mission of God to marriage and singleness and develops in this chapter a very robust theology of singleness. And it also made me think that in the 10 years that I've been here, I've never preached a sermon on singleness. I've never... I've never preached that sermon, and I've also realized that it is not just a problem with me. It is a broader problem with the church. The church has been guilty of perhaps overemphasis on marriage. This is probably, we do this because we felt like we need to engage in a culture war. And the culture war, um, his marriage is under attack, and so... And so we feel like we have to talk so much about marriage and sex and sexuality that we perhaps have overemphasized uh, marriage and underemphasized singleness. In other words, singles have been a casualty of the church having an unbalanced approach to our relationships as we've tried to engage a culture war instead of developing robust theology of marriage and singleness. Singles... This overemphasis, extreme overemphasis on marriage makes singles often feel like they're second-class citizens in God's kingdom. But here's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 7. Marriage is good and singleness is good. Some aspects of singleness and it comes to the the kingdom of God, the mission of God in this world, some aspects of singleness perhaps are even better than marriage. So 1 Corinthians 7 is dedicated, if you've got your Bibles open, to answering a question that was written by the Corinthian church to Paul. And it goes like this, it is good 
for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's sort of one of those statements that's couching a question. They've said this to him, and probably because uh, asceticism was rampant throughout the Corinthian church. And it went something like this. Look, Jesus is coming back soon, and so the physical world is bad, so you should give up physical things like sex or relationships or work or food. Those things just aren't important because Jesus is coming back soon. And Paul kind of stops for a second and says, okay, let's think about this. Let's think theologically through the issues And what he's doing in the whole of chapter 7 is he's applying the Bible to life in a really complex way. And that's how the Bible's supposed to work, right? It develops a way of thinking so that we can apply it to all of life and all of life's complexities and gain some clarity. And Paul's answer to the Corinthian church on whether marriage should be avoided is really nuanced. And he starts out by saying, look, marriage is good. It it serves functions, and God endorses it. In fact, God made it. Sex is good. It serves functions, and God endorses it. But in verse 8, he answers this. Look, singleness is a good thing. In fact, the word he uses for good is actually beautiful and desirable. Because there's two different kinds of good. There's, there's a good that has to be tolerated um, to get to the end that's good. Or there's like the good that's beautiful and desirable. Like you might take medicine and say it's good, but I'm really just tolerating it because I know that it will produce health in me. And so that's the good that I'm after. So this is a good because it relates to that good. But Paul doesn't say that. He says that it in itself, singleness, is beautiful and desirable. There is a beauty in singleness. Now, I feel like at this point, I need to define singleness because much has been made about marriage statistics. People are getting married later in life and fewer people are getting married. It's a trend, not to the point of alarming yet, but it's a trend. And so more and more people are calling themselves singles, but what they really mean is just simply unmarried. And that's not what Paul has in mind here. He's not has in mind here someone who hasn't committed to marriage but is still living in a sexual relationship with someone, not made the commitment of marriage. Paul's singleness is categorically different. He means unmarried and celibate. That's the word the ESV translates betrothed in verse 25 and then again in verse 28. Now, If you've got your Bibles open, you probably see that there's a footnote that could also be translated in verse 25 and 28 as virgin. What it really means, what he really means is someone who is currently single and committed to sexual holiness, to using their body towards the end of God's glory and not just fulfilling their desires. He's spending a lot of ink in the whole of chapter 7 talking about passions when it comes to sex. And so he he's really has in mind here someone who is single and committed to sexual holiness, celibacy. And that's where, that's where his category for singleness becomes really broad. Because he just doesn't mean someone who's 20 or 30 years old and has not yet been married. Look at verse 8. He's speaking to the unmarried and widows. And you can broaden that category out to those 
to include those who have either never been married, widows by death, widowers, divorcees, all people who find themselves in an unmarried state and are committed to being sexually holy, to using their bodies towards the end of glorifying God. In fact, if you think about this this way, singleness is the default position of life. All of us are born single. Most of us will die single. It's very seldom that even if you're married now, that you and your spouse will die at the same moment. One of you will return to a state of singleness. Sam Elberry is a great voice, is a single pastor, works now for Ravi Zacharias Ministries, a single man committed to singleness. He points out that, that we often speak of singles like they're unmarried. And he says, perhaps we should speak of married as being unsingle. Because for many and for most, singleness is the default position of life. In it, we have a lot of married families, a lot of married couples and a lot of married families in this church. But quite honestly, we have a lot of singles as well. And Paul thought that this was such an important thing for the church as a whole to hear that he dedicates this entire chapter. You have to remember that the book of Corinthians, as of all the New Testament books, were written to be read to the church as a whole. And so this is for the church as a whole to hear this. And here's Paul's point. Singleness is as spiritually good as marriage. Neither one is better than the other. There is an inherent beauty to marriage and there is an inherent beauty to singleness. Singleness is not a lacking. Singleness is just another beautiful way of doing life for God's glory. In fact, in verses 6 and 7, he says this, singleness is a gift. Verse 6, now as a concession, not as a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Singleness is not an unbearable state to be in. It's not a trial to simply be endured. It is a gift that is given for the sake of Jesus's mission in the world. It is good, verse 8, for them to remain single. And then in verse 38, so then he who marries his betrothed does well and he who refrains from marriage will do even better now don't think of the gift of singleness as the freedom from sexual desire or the unique ability to deal with loneliness or the superhuman lack of desire for marriage that's not what paul means when he says that singleness is a gift All those things often remain in a single person. Ask any single. They will tell you seldom do they go away. They're part of the struggle for them in singleness. It is a gift for the sake of God's mission. He uses the Greek word charismata here, a grace gift, a spiritual gift sometimes translated that way, a gift that is given by God's grace for the sake of God's mission to benefit those around you. A good gift used for the good of God and for the good of others. So 
I think this means not that some single people have the gift of singleness, but that all who are currently single have a grace gift that has been given by God and you need to steward that gift of singleness for the sake of his mission and for others. In other words, if you're single, don't try to figure out if you have the gift of singleness. If you are single, you have been given the gift, a grace gift. God may change that at some point. You won't be single anymore and then you need to steward the gift of marriage for the sake of his kingdom. But for now, you have been given a gift of singleness. So use it for the sake of the mission of God. That's why Paul can say, I wish that all were as myself. Because there are some real benefits to being single. For the apostle Paul, that meant his ability to travel and risk for the sake of the gospel. Paul's lifestyle just didn't work very well if he was married. Multiple imprisonments, beatings, shipwrecked. It's much more difficult to consider that when one has a spouse and children at home. When you are married, your responsibilities are so much more complex to think through. This is his point starting in verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The married man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about, sorry, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul's line of thinking isn't marriage is bad and singleness is good or vice versa, that singleness is better and marriage is bad or that marriage is hard and singleness is easy because both marriage is hard and singleness is hard and there are some benefits of marriage and benefits of singleness. Not so what he's thinking. His thinking is this. Marriage is complex. Singleness, it's less complex. And you should steward that gift for the sake of the mission of God. Again, Sam Elberry, just so good at this. He tells this story of a friend in another country who, whose child committed suicide. And, and he says this. He says, I was able to pack up my things and within a day be there for weeks to tend to their broken hearts. That's a lot harder to do when you have a spouse and children at home to consider. They are your responsibilities. There is a a simplicity, a less complex life that gives you certain freedoms when you have the gift of singleness. And the context for this less complicated nature of the gift of singleness is in verse 26 because there is a present distress. In verse 29, the appointed time has grown very short. And in verse 31, the present world is passing away. In other words, we live in the time of the end of redemptive history. This is the last stage before Jesus returns. And during this last stage, there will be wars and rumors of wars and famines and distress as Jesus promised. 
And because this present world is passing away, it makes sense that we need to count the cost of discipleship when we think about getting married. If you're considering marriage, the first question should not be, if you're in Christ, the first question shouldn't be, what do I want to do? The first question should be, what is the best way for me to serve God and his mission in these last days before Jesus returns? It may be marriage, but don't look on singleness as something to be gotten out of but something to be stewarded well as a gift for God's glory and for the sake of his mission. Now, if you're single, singleness is hard. It's lonely at times. It doesn't always feel like the beautiful gift that Paul calls it. And so let me give us a few things. Let me give you a few things. And and this is going to include the whole of us Let me give us a few things to help you navigate the Christian life with the gift of singleness. First, we need to realize as a whole church body, we need to realize that we need singles in the church and that our single brothers and sisters need the whole church. See, there's there's another way that singles are a blessing in the way that married couples are not because they help us remember, they remind us that the love of Jesus is better than sex. The intimacy with Jesus is categorically and experientially better than sexual intimacy with another human being. This is the reason sex was created by God was to point us to the greater reality of intimacy with Jesus. Again, Sam Alberry says this. He says, if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel. This is why the church needs single people to remind us that the joy and fulfillment of marriage in this life is partial and can only be temporal. The presence of of singles who find their fullest meaning and satisfaction in Christ is a visible, physical testimony to the fact that all of our longings come to their end in Jesus. Now, that's transition to point number two. Singles and all, Jesus is enough for our sexual desires. So let's talk about what to do with our sexual desires. Because there's a message that we receive and it surrounds us and you can't help but hearing it. And when you hear it, you're going to be shaped by it. And it goes like this. You are a sexual being and you must fulfill your sexual desires to be whole. But sexual desires are not the core of our being. They're part of being human, but they are not the core of being human. It was Freud who led us to believe that human equals sexual. And I'm afraid the church has bought that lie. Sexual desires need to be seen as bodily desires, not an essential desire. A good desire, but not an essential desire. So, four things here. And controlling and seeing these things, our desires properly. One, we're not animals. 
In fact, one of the things that distinguishes animals from human beings is the ability to control our desires. That's essential to being made in the image of God. An animal, when it goes into heat, has an uncontrollable desire that has to be fulfilled. But in the image of God, the human being has a will. And when that will is renewed by God, the Holy Spirit, we can once again gain control of our desires again. We are not enslaved to sin and its passions anymore. We're enslaved to Jesus and his righteousness made new by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so our desires can now, by Christ, not only be controlled, but satisfied by his love. Secondly, our desires are not untouched by the fall. We're totally depraved. That means all that we are, the totality of our being, has been corrupted by the power of sin. It snuck in and like a cancer has corrupted every part. Our desires, our will, our mind, our bodies. And while we're created sexual beings, sex is designed to serve as a function in the context of marriage. And one of the corruptions of sin is that we want to take it out of God's design context and use sex particularly, but any of our desires for our own ends rather than his glory. That's the nature of sin. And as a result of belonging to Jesus, thirdly, desires can be crucified with Christ. He has the power of death. And so he can weaken our desires by the cross so that our desires, all of our desires, all of our passions can be brought into submission to him. Remember that the most flourishing human being that ever walked the face of this earth remained single and celibate all of his life. Perfect in all, loving, compassionate, and now knows how to come to the aid of those who struggle with singleness and celibacy so that he can promise in Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Fourthly, if you feed a desire, it grows. If you starve a desire, it shrinks. But if you satisfy a desire, then you're free. And here's the reality. Satisfying your desires does not bring satisfaction. Sex is not the end of your desires. Ask any married man. You know how any married men deal with lust? Every one of them. It's not the end of your desires. Christ is the end of your desires. You see, when talking to a sex-hungry woman who was a serial adulterer, this is what Jesus promised her in this just double entendre that goes on and on in John chapter 4. Whoever drinks of this water is sitting by a well. He's talking to a sex-starved woman who can't find her desires met. He promises this. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So, Jesus is enough for our sexual desires. Now, back to our list. Third, the church is a family. and We need to regain the sense of family. 
in a sense, we need to recapture this as a driving metaphor for the church. One of our core principles as a church is this. There are two families. Every person belongs to two families. The one they are born into and the one they are born again into. And the one that we are born again into is deeper, richer, and more important than the family that we are born into. Again, Paul is addressing this letter to the whole church. There's no separate letter for singles in the church in Corinth. And then another letter to the married people in Corinth. The church as a whole needs to be integrated together, married and singles. We need each other to function well as the family of God and as the family of God. So much of, I'll have to admit this, so much of our ministry is structured to benefit married and families. And we probably need to consider church life that celebrates singleness as well as marriage and structures our lives to involve the singles. You hear from Psalm 68, God puts the lonely into families. So we're not divided into parts. And one of the ways this can play out is that singles, there are married families that you can serve, maybe offer to help take their kids to sports events or music lessons. Every family is overburdened and singles have the capacity to carry some of those burdens for the married families. Families. Serve the singles in the church by making them part of your family life. Set an extra plate at the table. Invite them over to dinner. Let them hang out with you. Invite a single person on a family vacation because they are part of the family of God with you. Don't make the nuclear family so tight that you forget the better family that is the family of God. Fourth, lastly, we need to develop intimate friendships. I think this is one of the casualties of elevating the nuclear family so high that we've sort of neglected developing intimate friendships. One of the ways that this shows up is that we have made the terrible mistake of equating sex and intimacy. So that if people of the same sex have deep, intimate relationships, we just automatically assume they must be gay. Many same-sex attracted individuals have found close friendships and then started to struggle with their sexuality because we just have no category for intimate friendships. We've got to recapture this. I mean, David and Jonathan had such a close relationship that David says of Jonathan, your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Jesus John, as we'll see, we're going to study John's gospel next uh, after Easter. John described himself as the one that Jesus loved, the beloved disciple. And we're told that when they sat at the Last Supper, that he was reclining on Jesus's breast, on his chest. Not because they were somehow sporting a 21st century sexuality, but because they were intimate friends and that's healthy. We're told to greet each other with a holy kiss because relational intimacy must be expressed in God's family physically. And when we flatten physical intimacy with sex, we miss out on all kinds of real intimacy through friendships. 
And when we do that, that's like going to the grocery store to get ice cream and only focusing on vanilla. There's just all these wonderful flavors out there of ice cream that we could enjoy. And the same thing's true with intimacy. If we flatten it just to include the marriage, Ben, man, we're missing out on many expressions that is meant by God to meet us in our loneliness. When the guys get together or the girls get together, here's what that means. Develop those kind of relationship with singles. Men, women, develop friendships with singles, even if you're married. And that probably means that you're not going to talk about your marriage and your children all the time with them. You're going to talk about things that are so much deeper. Marriage and children, they're going to, they're probably going to come and go. But the things that we have in common with our single brothers and sisters is so much more deep, so much deeper than circumstantial things. So talk about Christ, your sin, the scriptures, your struggles, your joys of walking with Jesus. These are the things that we have in common that are more important than our family and our marriage. C.S. Lewis said this, this great description of friendship in the four loves where he says this, friendship is born at that moment when one man or one woman says to another, what, you too? I thought that no one but myself thought this way and felt this way. And we have Christ in common with each other. The depth of our intimacy with each other is unparalleled and unplumbable. You can't go to the depths. It just flattens out. So let's, let's just work on this. Let's work on singles. Work on stewarding your gift well for the sake of God and his mission. Married, families, let's work on, on being together as one family of God who have Jesus as our older brother and who will one day together as his bride enjoy singles and married together enjoy sitting together as the bride of Jesus in love with the bridegroom together